Good morning. Y'all hear me? All right. It's good to see y'all. So glad that you're here. Good, good crowd today. Middle of February. Not bad, you guys. Hope you all had a good week. It's a beautiful day outside here in Houston, Texas. Wherever you're joining us from online, I'm glad y'all are here as well. It's too bad you're not in Houston with us, but wherever you are, we're so glad um, that, you are, that you're joining us. You're part of the story today. My name's Eric, and I'm one of the pastors here at The Story. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Story has, since 2015 when we began, in February, actually, of 2015. Actually, Tuesday is The Story's eighth birthday. If you're uh, in the celebrating mood, just uh, eat a cupcake for The Story on Tuesday. It's going to be uh, our eighth birthday, February 22nd. And ever since we began, The Story has had this mission, this same singular, simple mission to inspire non-religious people and skeptical people to follow Jesus. And if that's you, you come with questions today, um, even if you're sort of hiding it because you think you're not supposed to have questions at church because church is where questions go to die. I hate that you feel that way because at this church, uh, we believe in embracing those questions because by questioning the things that we, that we doubt about God and the Bible and everything, I think our faith actually grows and we have the confidence that the Holy Spirit can grow our faith even when we have these questions. The worst thing you can do is just pack those questions away and never ask them. So we're always, we're always asking questions and seeking the truth. Now today we're going to do that as part of our uh, very, very, very long message series called A Physician and the Facts. This is our first ever 22-week message series. Uh, this is, uh, I think the longest before this was a nine-week series, so 22 is pretty long by comparison. We're going through the Gospel of Luke together. He was a physician. He was not a Jewish man, the only non-Jewish person who wrote any of the Bible, and he wrote one of the four memoirs called the Gospels that we have of Jesus' life, these biographies, and he wrote it from a very particular perspective as a Gentile physician in the first century. So it's a really cool book. We're having a good time reading through the whole book together, and I'm teaching through it. And today is a special day. At the end of the service, we're going to have a baptism, um, and we're talking about what really we celebrate with baptism, which is the transformation of our hearts and souls. Like, the change that God wants to bring about in us, that transformation is what's on my mind today and what's in the reading from Luke today. And I want you to just be thinking about how real change happens in people's lives. Just wrestle with that question. I've wrestled with it all week. How does real change, how do people actually change? Fundamentally, not just around the edges with a diet here or there, but like how do we change? You know what I'm saying? Okay. So to kind of get our wheels turning about this, I wanted us to think about why we love transformation stories. I mean, half of the clickbaity kinds of articles that we find online are before and after pictures, it seems like. I mean, uh, we really are drawn to stories of change. All the movies that we watch even are about someone turning it around. And I think there are reasons for that. Consider, for example, this picture of this old, rusty, beat-up, good-for-nothing car, all right? What you're seeing here is an image of, of a 1929 Boxer Speedster manufactured by Auburn Automotive, which um, it may not look like much now, but in its day, in its day, it was one of the most desirable, one of the fastest, most expensive cars on the American roadway. So expensive that no one could afford it in the Depression years, and that's why the company died. <laughs> but it was quite the thing to behold 
back then, all right? Now, I don't know if uh, you know this, but we have a handful of car aficionados in our congregation, guys that are, some of them are like retired or semi-retired, they have a little money in their, in their pockets, a little time on their hands, and they restore cars because they like to see old, beat-up things restored to their former glory. And the picture that I showed you of that 1929 Boxer Roadster, or Speedster is actually, uh, it, that car belongs to a man that comes to the story. His name is Alan Atkinson, he's right back there. Hi, Alan. So uh, this, is, this is a picture of the car that he came into possession of. An amazing story. It belonged to some boxer in Cleveland. It's one of only 100 cars that were made like it in 1929, all right? Pretty special car. And through a painstaking process of just one part after another, one piece after another, one, you know, elbow grease, rub it out after another, like, like eventually... Eventually, this is what happened to that old beat-up speedster, right? Pretty well done. Not bad. Not bad. This, this is quite a turnaround, and there's something about it that just strikes at the human heart. Like, it strikes a chord in us because we want to see things as they should be seen. We want to see things as they should be, not always as they are, when they're beat up, broke down, rusted out, we want to see them again as they should be, as they were meant to be seen. Maybe you're not a car person, but you're a history buff. Think with me about uh, everybody's, every Texan's favorite uh, history theme, right? Remember the what? Alamo. This is one of the first, earliest pictures that was taken of the Alamo after the battle, after uh, Santa Ana and everybody besieged the Alamo. This is not how we want to remember the Alamo, Right? So I'm glad that some good-hearted Texans got to work and restored the Alamo to this, which is how we see it today, so that everyone can see the Alamo as it was meant to be seen, because this is how we all want to remember it, okay? Not in its beaten-up, besieged form, but in its pristine, as God intended kind of form, like that picture shows you. And it goes, our fascination with these before and after pictures goes beyond just, you know, inanimate objects. I mean, I think, I think the most effective ad campaigns are always about abandoned dogs. And somebody told me, if you're going to show an abandoned dog on the screen, you have to give people a trigger warning. So, trigger warning, all right? So it's not that bad, but it's one of those stories where a dog is neglected. Nothing maybe pulls at our heartstrings more than seeing a dog neglected like this dog on the left, your left, right? And, uh, and he's just not who he should be. Any dog lover right now, your heart is breaking because that's not who this dog is supposed to be and how this dog is supposed to look. That is and the stories that are told about people that go out of their way to adopt a neglected dog, to get a dog off the street and bring that dog into their home and love that dog back to health to its sort of God-intended condition, there's something deeply moving about a story like that. And I want you to press into that and ask, what is it about these before and after stories that touch us so much? Maybe the most touching stories of before and after are the ones that we tell about other people, our fellow human beings who, you know, are faced with a hopeless situation and somehow they find a way to turn it around or they, they get themselves into a mess. You know, uh, like I found this image before and after of this same woman. I couldn't believe it was even the same woman. The version of her on the left, she was messed up, strung out on heroin and all kinds of other substances. She was without hope, without light. Her 
eyes were as dead as they can be. But she found a way to get her life back on track, to get into recovery, to work the 12 steps, and become this version that's closer to who God made her to be, closer to the image of God in which she was created. The light's back in her eyes. And, and she's, she's glorious as God intended again, right? The death that the drugs brought upon her is gone. These stories touch us on a deeply human level, and I think they do so for two reasons. First of all, as I said before, we appreciate these stories for the story's sake themselves. Like, we like to see old things restored to the way they were, they should be, the way they should be seen. But it's not just that we like to see other things, other people, and other dogs, you know, restored for their own sake. There's something about it that we find deeply moving because it gives us hope too. Because every single one of us came here this morning and goes everywhere all the time holding some kind of deep something, secret or some kind, maybe it's not a secret because your dirty laundry is out there. It is known, right? And there's something about each and every one of us that we wish we knew how to change. We wish we knew how to take that before and after picture of that one part of us. But no matter how many times we tell ourselves we're gonna, we just don't follow through. We're in a rut. We're stuck with that part of ourselves, and if you're stuck with that part of yourself that you wish could change for long enough, you start to wonder if it ever will change. And that's why we look to stories like these that remind us that change, dramatic change and transformation are possible because we want to hope that we can change too. And whatever that part of you that I'm talking to right now, that part of you that you've sworn that it won't continue, that last time was the last time, and then it wasn't, and you went right back to that well of dirty water that you've been drinking for years, right back to making the same mistakes. Whatever that is for you, I want you to bring all of that into this, the rest of this service and into the rest of this message today because today's passage from Luke is about how things change and how people are transformed, all right? So uh, you have your study guides, and you can get those out. Uh, those have uh, scriptures and uh, leading questions in them. As we look at this story from Luke chapter 9 about a time that Jesus was transformed or transfigured in the presence of three of his apostles, Peter, James, and John, this is uh, the story of the transfiguration today uh, from Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Luke chapter 9, verse 28 and 29, we'll just do two verses for now, but it says, about eight days after Jesus said this, Jesus had just told them that he's got to go to Jerusalem and die so that all the plans of God can be fulfilled. They didn't like to hear that, but he kept telling them so that it would get through to them. After Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James, those are his leadership council of the 12 disciples, he had three in leadership, Peter, John, and James, up to the mountain to pray. As Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and its clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. So this verse, these pas this passage is describing this, the quintessential mountaintop experience with God, this sort of worship experience. Now, just to put it out there, Christians believe that the most fundamental way that human beings change isn't by tinkering around the edges with therapy or with diets or with fads or social media trends. It's by experiencing God. 
And no matter who you are, whether you are, you know, a C-suite Houstonian, you know, oil and gas guy, doing quite well with yourself, but there's that one part of you that you wish you could get a handle on, or whether you're in prison today and listening to this sermon online somehow, or whether you're in uh, drug and alcohol recovery, or you're still deep in your addiction, I'm telling you the most fundamental way to access change and transformation is by opening yourself to an experience with God. Now, this has often been called the mountaintop experience because of stories like this, where, where Jesus and his disciples are literally on a mountaintop. And I went through a phase in my life where I would really criticize the mountaintop experience as though it's just a phase. It's just something that comes and it goes. Because when I was a student, you know, all of our students right now are away at a retreat in the woodlands right now. They're having their mountaintop experience. And I remember having those and then coming back and doing the exact same stuff that I was doing before the mountaintop experience. Remember that? You would go to church camp every summer and you'd say, this is it. I'm really going to change this time. Then you'd come back and you'd go after the same girls and go to the same parties and say the same words you were saying before. And it was demoralizing because you didn't think the change really took. That should not stop us from continuing to go up the mountain with Jesus. Experiencing God is the best way and most profound way to change. There's three sort of phases to this experience Jesus has on the mountain with his disciples. The first one is prayer. Why did they go up the mountain? Well, this passage tells us they went up the mountain to pray. To pray. Experiencing God begins with prayer. Y'all, I know a lot of people who say things like, uh, I've never really experienced God like you have, Eric. I don't have those experiences with God like I hear other Christians talking about, Eric. So I'm, they start to feel left out, like, woe is me, sort of. I don't have those experiences, so what am I supposed to do about it? Is there something wrong with me, or what's going on here? Well, I know a lot of people like that, and I know a lot of people who say, I don't really know how to pray. And the Venn diagram between those two groups of people, basically a circle. They're the same group. The, the practice and discipline of prayer, consistent, rhythmic prayer in your everyday life, is, it directly correlates to the experiences you'll have on the theoretical mountaintop with God. And, and yet we muddy the waters with prayer, don't we? Why do people feel so intimidated by prayer? Because all the, the only times they hear people pray are professional prayer people like me. And I can't do that. Because I, I haven't been in seminary. I don't even know what half those words mean, Eric. You pray. I'll just sit here. You know, Jesus had more condemnation to share with people who pray like preachers do than he said about anyone who prays simply. And from the heart and sincerely with basic language or, or, or with no language. You don't even have to have the words. Jesus it was so gracious and good that when his disciples said, how exactly are we supposed to pray, Lord? Because we can't pray like you, Jesus. Jesus said, if you don't have words of your own, just pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come on, y'all. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. How sweet is Jesus 
to give us a script to work from (laughs) when we don't have the words to pray. We literally have no excuse not to go to God in prayer. He's given us the form. He's given it to us. And as if that were not enough, after he died on a cross and rose from the dead, he sent us his Holy Spirit. And, And what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit in prayer is extraordinary. It says, when we have no words to pray, the Spirit intercedes on our behalf and prays for us with groans and sighs too deep for words. You don't have to say anything at all. All you have to be is available to God. That's prayer. And prayer is the gateway to experiencing God. If you struggle with prayer, it's going to be a struggle to experience God at all. And and, and I think this is uh, important for us to remember because prayer always precedes the awakening that we seek. As as Psalm 85, 6 says so well, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Sometimes we just pray that God would wake us up again and revive us again. I don't know who saw in the news this week. It was pretty extraordinary. It's now been 10 or 11 days, I think, of 24-7 outbreak of worship at a place called Wilmore, Kentucky, at a school called Asbury. It's a, it's a Methodist-affiliated um, institution, kind of like the story started in the Methodist church and has left. Asbury now is not officially affiliated with any denomination, but but they've always had some ties with Wesleyan denominations, and uh, we, send, we send people to Asbury all the time. We've got a couple of folks in this congregation that go to Asbury. Pastor Kale over at Timber Grove Campus is going to Asbury right now. Anyway, what happened was uh, 10 or 11 days ago, they were having a normal prayer meeting, and the students, these Gen Z 20-year-olds, decided they wanted to keep praying when the service was over. And so they kept praying. And then a few others joined them in prayer, and then more came, and then suddenly the place was full of people who were praying and crying out to God, and then the band showed up, and they started singing songs, and it was not planned, it was not programmed, there was no, you know, official sort of church leadership that ordained it, it just happened. And, and it happened to such an extent that tens of thousands of people in Wilmore, Kentucky, and now in places all over the country, something called an awakening or a revival is breaking out to the extent that CNN is talking about it, which I never thought I would hear the day or see the day that CNN talks about. Anyway, I, don't know, I could go off about, about CNN, but um, I'm not used to seeing hopeful stories about Christians and Christianity on CNN. And this is uh, extraordinary. And it's exciting because of how it happened, how sweetly and innocently it began with a couple of 20-somethings saying, let's keep praying. It was not, it was not programmed from any top-down way. It was not rubber-stamped by the powers that be. It just sprung up from within. And what I love about it is this reminder that You don't have to do it right to get it right. You don't have to to be in the right place or with the right people or saying the right words in order for God's spirit to be poured out on you, for you to experience God. All you need to do is be available to God. One interesting thing I've seen in the aftermath of Asbury is people like going on pilgrimages to Wilmore, Kentucky, of all places, and and wanting to experience God, so they go find him there. Y'all, I don't... I don't want to criticize that because I think there is a, a, an aspect of this that everyone wants to go see it. But the beautiful thing about living in the age of the Holy Spirit is that revival's everywhere. 
You don't have to go to Wilmore to see it. You don't even have to go to any particular church to experience it. God is available to us at all times and places by his omnipresent Holy Spirit, always available to you to experience him. The only question is whether you are open and available to him and responsive to him. And that's really the second thing we see unfolding in this um, passage. First is prayer. And I would just challenge you, do you come to worship prayerful? Or do you wait until you get here to start praying? And if you want to experience more of him in the service, you should already have said your first prayers long before you darken these doors. And you come ready to experience him on this theoretical mountaintop. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 30 now. Let's keep reading. Two men then, Moses, representing the law of Moses in the Old Testament, and Elijah, who was representing the prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus said he came to fulfill both, the law and the prophets, and now they're coming to be reunited with Jesus on the mountain. They appeared with Jesus in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. So Peter and the disciples were always sleepy. And I don't exactly know why, but I have a little bit of sympathy for them. Jesus must have been an intense person to follow. He's got all the energy in the universe. You know, it's like literally like he's like he's nonstop, right? Always on. And uh, the disciples uh, had trouble keeping up as exciting As it must have been, they still found themselves um, falling asleep at the most inopportune times. But here they awaken. What do they awaken to? They awaken to something the Bible calls the Shekinah glory of God. It is the glory of God shining from Jesus, reflecting off of Moses and, and Elijah that wakes them up from their half slumber, right? Now, the Shekinah glory of God is a concept in the Bible that is um, not understood enough these days. We think of glory like yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power. We just gloss right over it as if it doesn't mean anything. Glory of God literally means his light, his marvelous, overwhelming, all-encompassing light. And the light of God wasn't just shining on the sun, Jesus, on the mountaintop. It was shining from him. And the Bible talks about Jesus as being a source of light and not just a reflector of heaven's light. And when we come near to Jesus, we absorb, receive, and, and reflect the light that he shines upon us. That's the idea of Shekinah glory. The, the point being, you cannot experience Jesus in all of his glory without being changed. And that experience of of Jesus and his glory can only be described as worship. When you see Jesus in his glory, right? Like this was sort of Jesus showing us who he really is, showing Peter, James, and John who he really is. It's not that he had, you know, fallen into disrepair like the old car that that Alan restored, you know, but, but Jesus had yet to show his disciples what it looked like for him to be fully God in their midst. And he showed them the glory of God. And from that point, something shifted in them. Something shifts in all of us. When we see God the same way for who he is in all of his glory, we can no longer be buddies with this God. We can no longer sort of have him as our co-pilot, like the bumper sticker used to say. We're not, we're not equals, him and us. When you see him in all of his glory, all you can do is fall on your knees and worship him because you see if he's that big, powerful, good, 
and beautiful. He can only be worshipped. And you can only surrender. And this is uh, what worship really is meant to be, which is why it troubles your pastor's heart a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, all right? When I see us being borderline formulaic with worship, and when I see people going through the motions, there is nothing sadder and more tragic maybe in a Christian's life than going for decades through the motions and half-heartedly worshiping God because there's no such thing as half-hearted worship. That's dead worship. And so I worry sometimes about, about us getting into a rut or a routine with our worship. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to break out the you know, snakes and fire batons and stuff and just throw all caution to the wind. I'm not even talking about the form of our worship because the form of worship is secondary to the heart, right? That's why one thing I really love about the Stories Worship Service is that if you got a button-down Presbyterian and a snake-handling Pentecostal in the Stories Worship with us, both of them would be equally uncomfortable, Presbyterian would be like, this is a little too crazy. The Pentecostal would be like, they need, to, they need to get up off their feet. You know what I mean? It's like, I want both of those extremes to be a little uncomfortable because that means we're not succumbing to any kind of peer pressure to fit into the right form of worship. That's not what it's about. Some of y'all raise your hands. Some of you keep your hands in your pockets. The point is, where's your heart? And is your whole heart here? Or is only part of it here and part of it's there and part of it's there and part of it's at work, part of it's at home, part of it's somewhere else it shouldn't be, right? To worship God with their whole heart is the only way to worship him. That's what it means, I think, to wake up to his glory. That's what I woke up to, you know, 10 years ago this month that I've talked about in, in my Holy Land Come to Jesus meeting. I woke up to the fact that I was well acquainted with the concept of God's love. I knew all about the love of God. I talked about the love of God all the time, but I had forsaken for years the notion of the fear of the Lord. And when you wake up to the Shekinah glory of God, you awaken to the fear of the Lord, not because you're afraid of him sending you to hell or hurting you. You just realize there's no other way to respond or react to something so mighty and beautiful and good. But with a healthy fear, the fear of the Lord. That's what it means to awaken to his glory. The disciples on the mountain with Jesus, they awoke. They, awoke. they woke up to the glory of God, and, and they couldn't stop talking about it. John got around to writing his gospel. The same John that was on the mountaintop with Jesus got, finally got around to writing his gospel, and he got 13 verses into his gospel before he started talking about this experience of seeing the Shekinah glory of God. John 1.14 says, And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the Shekinah glory of God. Where do you think John beheld his glory? First and foremost, on that mountain, with Jesus, the glory of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. Now, Peter, one of the other uh, inner circle disciples that was on that mountaintop with Jesus, also went on and on about this sort of odd experience that he had with God on the mountain, and transfiguration experience. This is what Peter wrote years after these events took place. Peter wrote in 2 Peter verse 1, verse 16 and 17, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made Jesus known to you, made, made, I'm sorry, made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we 
were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. Okay, so this is the voice we're about to hear in the next verse. But, but he says, this voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard that, Peter says, we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter, decades after these events happened, was still talking about this experience where he prayed with Jesus and then he awoke to the glory of God. These are the experiences that transformation is made of. Okay, so they experience God by being awakened in their worship. My question to you is, are you awake? Are you awake? Okay, good. Most of you are still in doubt, but most, <laughs> it's still early. Uh, the 8.30 service, I got nothing. The 8.30 service just sat there. It was like, no. When you come to worship, are you fully awake? Are you here and aware of his glory? Let's keep going and finish this passage out. Verse 33. As the men were leaving Jesus, that's uh, Moses and Elijah were leaving Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then Luke totally throws Peter under the bus. Look what he says next. <laughs> Luke says, for he did not know what he was saying. So Peter did not know what he was talking about. All right, so <laughs> if you look, the closer you look in the New Testament, you see that these were really just guys that wrote the New Testament, and they were throwing barbs at each other. One time Peter's like, I know Paul doesn't make any sense, but just give it your best when you read his letters. Like, and here, here Luke is like, Peter didn't know what he was talking about, let's be honest, right? Because he's like, let's put up some shelters. What did Peter want, though? Peter wanted to stay on the mountain. He wanted to stay on the mountain and keep this experience to themselves. <laughs> and that wasn't the plan. Next, we, said, we, we see that while Peter was still speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I've chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone, and the disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at the time what they had seen. They, didn't, they waited until Jesus' plan was fulfilled. He died and was resurrected. That's when they started testifying about this event. But it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the same event. Okay, so what do we see happening here? First, they went to the mountain with Jesus and began their experience with God in prayer. That's our portal to worship, prayer. Second, they woke up to the glory of God shining out of Jesus' face and through his clothes. Third, they listened. This is the third way, third step in this path of experiencing God. Prayer, awakening, listening. Okay. Listening to the voice of God. This is Peter's lesson. He wanted to stay in the moment. He wanted to stay on the mountain. But Jesus had bigger plans than just staying on the mountain. Remember what I told you, what Jesus had just said before this passage? Jesus just told them again, I've got to go to Jerusalem, y'all. It's time to die. And every time he said this, Peter was like, no way, that's not happening. Not on my watch. Like, Peter's going to protect him from it, right? And, and that's just Peter's vibe. You know, he's, he's a great guy. I'm sure he's going to be fun to hang out with for eternity. But like, he, he missed it a lot. He missed it a lot, and, and he missed it here. He's like, let's stay on the mountain. Forget Jerusalem. Forget dying. Let's hang out with you and me and James and John and Moses and Elijah. 
I'll build you some tents. It'll be good. And that's when the voice from heaven interrupted Peter and said, this is my son, right? Now, there's only two times in Luke's whole gospel that the voice speaks from heaven. And the first time was like months ago in part three or four of the series where we talked about the baptism of Jesus. You remember that? And the voice spoke from heaven then in Luke chapter three. And the voice said, uh, you are my beloved son, right? You are my son whom I love. With whom, with you, I am well pleased. So who's the voice, the father's voice speaking to in Luke 3? Speaking to the son, right? This is an intimate moment that we happen to capture. And over here, the father speaking to the son. Here, though, the second and only other time that the voice speaks from heaven, the father says this. He says, this is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. Who's the father talking to now? Us. That's right. Us. Listen, you come in prayer, you awaken in your worship to his glory, and then you listen for his commands. Y'all, we're not supposed to stay on the mountaintop with God. I know it's sweet to be with God. I know we would like in some ways to all just sort of, uh, you know, round up the, the Christians and just be together and circle the wagons and be safe in our cocoons of worship. Some of us would love that. But again and again, he sends us down the mountain into the valleys to spread the gospel, to shine the light that Jesus has shown upon us to the world around us until there's no more darkness left, until everyone walking in darkness has seen the great light that saved us. There is an there inhale and an exhale to this life we have with Jesus. There is an ebb and a flow to it. And Billy Graham put it so well when he said this. He said, mountaintops are for views and inspiration, but fruit is grown in the valleys. The third way that we experience God is by coming down from the mountain, listening to him, to what he tells us, and then following him down the mountain to spread the, the word and shine the light that we have received from him. This is the rhythm of worship that we're called to have and experiencing him and being changed by that experience. Now, I think where people get lost, maybe where you're feeling lost right now, is the whole idea of having uh, remarkable experiences with God. Because you've heard Christians, you've heard me talk about well, that one come to Jesus moment, there was before that and there was after that, and I'll never be the same. And you've never had an experience like that. You've had little experiences, maybe. You've had sort of life-changing ones, but not this kind of earth-shattering Damascus Road experience that you hear other Christians having. And you think maybe you're missing something or something's defective with you. That's not the case, y'all. It's not a matter of having one, you know, experience that changes your life forever. Your trajectory with Jesus doesn't look like an ever-increasing, you know, straight line in the positive direction. It's not one spike, you know, in your trajectory with him, and now you're just, you're coasting. That's not how it works. In fact, if you want to conceptualize your trajectory or the life that you have with God, I encourage you to think of it as something like a healthy heartbeat in an EKG machine. If you think about how these uh, ebbs and flows look, these ups and these downs. There's every once in a while, you have these huge spikes where, oh my gosh, my eyes are open. You know, you hold your newborn baby for the first time. God is real. 
or you uh, face death or some scary diagnosis and you're healed or brought back from the brink of death, near-death experience, God is real. It's true. All of it is true. But those experiences are few and far between in my, in my experience. And what's more common are those little, smaller, molehill-type bumps that happen in between the big spikes, the little hills that come rhythmically, more frequently. To me, these are like what happens when we gather for worship and Bible study and home groups and things like that, where we get this little boost of an experience with God. We, we come in prayer, we awaken to his glory, we listen to his mandate, and then we go and scatter and spread the word together. The point isn't having a big emotional outburst or an emotional experience. In fact, being truly revived by the Spirit of God has nothing to do with emotionalism. It's about availability and regularly, consistently making yourself available to God, opening your whole heart to him. And I pray that you will do that right now because I don't want any of us to look back with regrets later and think we let the moments pass us by when we could have made ourselves available to God and been changed by his glory, but we did not. Instead, we settled and we assumed that who we've been is who we always will be. There's no hope for us, no change, no transformation to be had. Let that spirit and attitude come to an end today. Rebuke it today. Instead, open your heart to God and let him change you from within. Come to him with prayer. Awaken to his glory and worship and listen to him as he sends you out to serve him, the world around you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your glory that shines on us at church, at home, when we sleep, when we rise, when we feel it, when we don't, when we're depressed, when we're overjoyed, your Shekinah glory is shining down upon us and we are humbled in your presence. Lord, we seek you with our prayers We respond to you and awaken to your glory. And now we listen to you for how you're sending us out to be your hands and feet in the world, shining the light that you've shown on us. We thank you for who you are. We pray all these things in the powerful, powerful name of Jesus. Amen.